Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. You'll be hard-pressed to meet anyone more genuine and keen to help than Michael Degama Pinto, the CEO and founder of The Foundry Group. When we first talked about recording a podcast together, rather than wanting to focus on the two exceptional Australian brands, he helped achieve international success in ESOP and Swiss. All the operational expertise he brings to his portfolio companies, helping management teams with the right capital structure and resourcing to take advantage of favourable industry conditions. He wanted to share a couple of very personal stories, which he thinks really demonstrate the essential learnings from his journey. He wanted to share the stories, not because they cast him in the most favourable light, quite the opposite actually, but because Michael's always thinking of the most effective way to help founders truly absorb the learnings which will underpin their success. Michael's focused on the health, wellness and beauty space, being a passionate believer in the multiplier effect of taking care of body and mind and leaving a positive mark on the world. The majority of profits from the investments that Michael and his family make are donated to charities supporting health, employment and education initiatives. But what Michael feels is his most important and proudest achievement is being the father of three beautiful children. Michael, I'm so excited to sit down with you and I feel a little bit honoured because I think this is your first podcast and I know you like to keep a a low profile, so I feel really grateful that you're sharing some time and some insights with us. Oh, absolute pleasure, Catherine. It's a little bit out of my comfort zone and I'm happy to be here. I'm grateful for anyone listening. I know my mum will be sure to send this around to a few people, especially my auntie, so to my Aunties in India, especially. Hello. Um, so I thought it'd be good if we could sort of explore your story through, you know, a couple of specific examples that might be relevant for people. So I thought the place we might start was about cash flow, and I know how important that is for all businesses, but particularly high growth startups. So it would be great for you to start there. Absolutely. Um, before I get going, I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm coming and speaking to people today from Wurundjeri land. And I want to acknowledge the elders, past, present and future. Today, I thought I really wanted to acknowledge the privilege it is to speak to you, Catherine, and and what you and the team are doing at scale. I've come across it a few times along the journey, and I think it's great. I've been on my own journey of education, and I've noticed that I've had a lot of benefits of being a male in my time, especially from the investing world. And... I think I'm making active change in how I interact with my businesses, the diversity in that. But I do believe uh, capital world and access to equity needs more diversification. They say cash is king, cash is king and queen. And 
I would love to start there. I, if you bear with me, I've got sort of a story to share with you about a own experience and then I'll uh, move forward. But a lot of people are hardwired to talk about success. And I have been associated with a couple of successes, being CFO of Swiss and an investor in ESOP and advisor to Adore Beauty. But actually the best business lesson I got was really early on in my career when I lost a bit of money when I was in a private equity fund. And we had an investment in a solar company. And within 12 months of investing in that solar company, they had solved the nifty problem of getting the consumer to adopt solar. And they were doing that by reducing the cost to the consumer. They tried to be as efficient as possible. And then the government rebates got better. And actually, people were better off putting solar quicker. And it took it from a seven-year sort of payback period to within one year. And so revenues ballooned. And it was a really exciting time. And within 12 months of our investment, revenues grew three times. And the valuation, we got some unsolicited offers. And valuation was up five times. And, you know, you have to pardon this horrible pun, but the business couldn't have been hotter at the time. And so we were patting each other on the back. But within six months of that moment, the government realised how expensive this program was. And they announced that to the market. And overnight, the renewable energy certificates that were used to fund the solar panels and make it cheaper for the consumer, that crashed. And so we then turned to our business to check out the state of the business. And we felt that the business could ride through that. But what the business had neglected during that time was to be banking those renewable energy credits and turning into cash. So we actually had a healthy business, a healthy, but if you looked at the profit and loss, the market was still growing if you if you looked at it, but we didn't have cash and we borrowed a little bit of money from the bank in that time and the bank lost confidence in our ability to pay that money back and swept the cash and the business was no longer. And I learned probably the most painful lesson is that if you borrow money or you take from an investor, you lose a little bit of control of your business. And the only way you can truly keep control of your business is with cash. And the more of your own cash you generate, the more control you're in in your business. And in that moment, I actually discovered I don't want to be at the mercies of other people. I like to control my own destiny. So I went on a journey. The best teaching I got out of private equity is to control your cash. And the cheapest way of controlling your cash is to make your own profit. And profit seems to be a dirty word at times. And to me, profit is a necessity because you need profit to generate cash, it has a, and if you don't generate profit for a little bit, that's okay. But if you don't generate profit for too long, you need to borrow money or raise money from investors for that cash. And then you slowly lose control. So yeah, that's probably the most impactful. So how do you, as an investor, reconcile that then? Because there are other venture investors who feel a bit differently that feel like, Raise, 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 raise. Whenever there's doors open for someone to write you a check, take as much money as you can so you can grow faster than anyone else. And so how, as an investor, have you been able to reconcile your philosophy of 
ensuring that you've got a path to profitability. You might not be profitable today, but you gen, you know that you're generating revenue. You know where you see other investors maybe setting up competitors for your investee companies because they're just pumping capital into them. Yeah, I think it goes to different time horizons and different. I'm interested in building brands and partnering with brands that will be here five, 10, 20 years from now. That's sort of a, a goal I have in during business. I think uh, venture is a, is a strategy that works, that you can raise, 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 build, 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 be first, be biggest, be best, but there's a certain element of risk that's attached to that. So speed and money velocity, and if you make it, that's awesome. And so I think that goes to a brand has to decide what are they actually trying to achieve? Do they want to be first and biggest as quick as possible? That's cool. That can happen. But equally, the chances of that not happening are also quite high. And so I want to judge our success in consumer brand land to say, well, we want brands that I'm proud of to be a part of in 5, 10, 15 years. Applying that lesson for the benefit of the founders you work with, what are the sort of practical suggestions you make for some of your founders in terms of how they can really focus on cash generation? Founders, if they could give themselves a mini MBA, is to get as close to cash as possible. The finance world has a whole bunch of jargons. I see that as a bit of a defensive mechanism to allow people even to get in there. But if you actually strip it back, cash flow is a fundamental thing. We actually, our day-to-day lives are around cash and, and we live with that. We actually have more financial knowledge than what we think. We should just push past the jargon and simplify it and, and be in the weeds of your cash flow. Control it. And the best businesses and the best founders have some knowledge of their cash flows because as owners, it's important to work out when to raise or when to get funding or or when to grow and when not. And that usually is a function of cash. And so the earlier, the better owners can get a grasp of their own cash flows. Are there any companies that you're an investor in that you think really do that exceptionally well? It's hard picking favourites or picking, you know, I'm going to offend some by uh, what I might do is point to a past experience here with with Swiss, I think that the executive team had come up with an incredible awareness model and an really they brought personality to a category, which was um, vitamins, and, and, and they brought that to life. But that's expensive when you partner with ambassadors and you have big TV campaigns to get awareness. What we then did was play with our working capital cycle to match the timing of our payments to when we could expect to receive that money. So instead of paying everyone up front, we we sort of took people on a journey to explain that by the time we advertise and do our sell-in and get paid for that and do our advertisement to sell through the product, there's a bit of time there and we matched that with our suppliers and we took them on that journey and they were fantastic. And then that allowed us to grow faster and our suppliers got to grow faster with us. And so, yeah, I'm very proud of that. What I'm hearing from you is that it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Keep it simple. 
make sure that you use knowledge as power and don't get fooled by the numbers. You know, don't allow the numbers to tell a story that's not really accurate. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, very well said. Anyone can make paper profits. I can, you know, give me a profit and loss. I can make it look good. Cash flows are a lot harder to actually make look good. You either have cash and are making cash or you don't have cash and you need more cash and and cash flows don't lie to me. And so that's where I put my time in. And I think if more founders had awareness of that earlier in their stage, if they can give themselves a six-month window before they need cash, they can probably strategize a bit better. At the moment, the window is open and you can raise within 12 weeks or less, so that's okay. But at some stage, that stops and being prepared is everything. And presumably the best place to get cash from is customers Yeah. as compared to the bank or an investor. If you've got people buying your product, it's a good indication that you've got a a good business you're spot on the cheapest form of capital is your own profit so if you can make that the next cheapest form is bank debt and then the next cheapest form is raising money we talked a little bit before about that sort of risk return spectrum and the sort of extra risk that comes with you know raising a lot of capital and wanting to grow really fast i'd be fascinated to to sort of hear more about your experiences on those risk-reward trade-offs? Yeah. If you indulge me, I've got another story for you, pre-prepared, but I think about risk-return a lot. That's, you know, if I'm not focused on cash flow, I'm focused on the risk-return spectrum. And and the best way to exemplify that is an, an early lesson I got. I was a bit too young and I was gambling and I had $100 in my wallet And I took that to the casino with some friends and actually ate into $95 of that and had an hour left there. And I I took the last $5 and had to make it stretch out. So I went to play some pokies machines and actually saw the numbers nerding me saw that there was a machine there that you could put a dollar in and you got to play five lines. And so that's cost of 20 cents per line. But if if it won, I got paid a dollar per line. So I was like, wow, I'm going to get back at the casino. So I started playing that machine and three spins in, five balloons appeared in an upside down B. And with these glistening, I still remember it. And the music starts playing and it starts increments of $25, $50, $100, $500. And I hit a 5,000 to one shot on my second or third trip to the casino and life felt good. Um, But unfortunately, I got focused on the reward that I got and everyone was, all my mates, and and we'd head back to the casino a lot. And it's fair to say over the next 10 years, the casino got that money back from me and, and more because I was chasing that high again. I was chasing the reward, but I wasn't acutely aware of the risk I was taking. And so I think... And I strongly feel that society focuses a lot on reward. I think that one of the most important things in in business is understanding where you sit on the risk-reward spectrum. Society seems to normalise unicorns, and now we're talking decacorns, right? Ten times a unicorn, 
And it's about how quickly you can do that and how much of your company you can own when you're a unicorn. That seems to be a bit of the dialogue. Whereas to me, I think that that's fine, but that's acknowledging that you're playing at a certain return that you're looking for, which is right up the the top end of the risk return spectrum. And if you want to do that quickly, it means you've got to take a lot of risk to get there. And I like people who are honest about that risk and reward and aware of what they're trying to do. The reality is, as you know, Catherine, 90 plus percent of businesses that start out don't make a million dollars in revenue. And it's really hard. And a lot of times it can fall over because of not knowing where you are on the risk reward spectrum. And so if you want to build an enduring brand and you want to be paid really well for it and not sacrifice your income, that's going to take some time and it's going to take some money up front to allow you to do that. And so if people understand that they've got to raise a certain way and they've got to take a different level of risk. If you want to build a business that attracts eyeballs on day one, goes viral, blows up, you've got to solve a problem that exists and you want to be first to do it, you're going to need some money as well but you're going to need a higher velocity of money and action early on. And so acknowledging that, I feel like the best businesses are able to carefully work out when to take risk, are aware of the risk that they're taking and exploit it and, and work through it. And, and I love when people do that well. So one of the things we love about entrepreneurs is that they are happy to try stuff they've never done before. They're able to suspend disbelief, you know, and often they don't know what they don't know. How, as an entrepreneur, do you think you best go about trying to work out what the real risks are if you're doing something for the first time? I love the modern entrepreneur. Like, I, I, I love the agility. You know, I, I feel old already. I'm only 41, but I feel so old when I speak to there's just a new way of doing business and I'm so excited by it. And on the whole, I would say, awesome. I've done this myself when, when I, I like to throw out the rule book at certain times and, and disrupt. But if you throw out the rule book on too many things, you can lead to challenges. So it's all about, for me, the modern entrepreneur is throw out the rule book on certain things. But if you're throwing it out on too many things and being too agile, you've got to question whether you have the right balance or not. So I'm, I'm excited about, I'm seeing entrepreneurs surround themselves with people who've done it before, cherry pick a couple of good ideas from them, but make them their own and pivot to new information. I find a lot of big businesses, it's actually quite hard to pivot once you've got an established business and established culture. I think there's so many businesses with a wonderful advantage on others right now and them being agile, throwing out a couple of rules and finding the right people to interact with is amazing. And is that sort of your value proposition, if you like, to entrepreneurs to the extent that if they're doing this for the first time, as an investor, you can bring some of that scar tissue to the experience for them and sort of say, look, these are some of the things you might not have thought of or the risks that you're actually taking approaching it this way maybe we should think about a different way? Yeah, we'd like to talk about risk. It's really boring <laughs> and risk 
doesn't matter until it actually occurs. So it's really unsexy. And But when it happens, it's like, oh, shit. Like, there's always been a risk of a pandemic, but we didn't do much to prepare for it until it happened. That's a lot of something happens in business. So for me, Catherine, I think what we believe we can offer is allowing businesses to be ready for risk, but not necessarily stop the business to prepare for that risk. So allow the entrepreneurs to be as incredible as they are, keep going, do more of what they do. But we know a couple of tricks because we've been there before that says, hey, if you do this on the side, you might avoid a growing pain here or there, or you might be able to deal with the regulatory issue ahead of time. Like, yeah, we, we bring battle scars. They're not perfect, but but we always believe that history, it doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes in life. So that's what we like to bring to the businesses. I know you think a lot about life in general. What are some of the, the sort of most important lessons you've learned about life in, in your very short 41 years? <laughs> With regards to risk reward, I think one of the key things I'd love to leave people with in terms of a life lesson is we're all wired to look for the reward. We have bias. And to the people who speak loudest about reward, they get heard the most. I'm personally trying to remove that bias from my life. I'm hiring more diverse teams. I'm pushing myself to surround myself with different thinkers different points of views, uh, different sexes, different religions outside of my comfort zone because diverse thinking and discussing risk and reward is really important. I have friends and I that love and, and we're predominantly masculine that love to talk about how we're going to win, you know, <laughs> you know, let's win, win, win. And, and yet um, I have more community-minded females in my life that is saying, watch out here or, or watch out there. And and I'm better for that dialogue. I'm much better for that dialogue. So I would encourage a life lesson of more of that, more of that and respecting risk early. The ultimate life lesson that I've had that leads me to my sort of final story that it's so embarrassing, but if you bear with me, is really early on in life, I was in the Greek islands. I've been dating. I escaped the friend zone and I'd been five years friends with a girl. and uh, we'd been girlfriend and boyfriend, and I took it to the Greek islands. On that trip, we went up a volcano, did a guided tour, and then we were about to go to a hot springs. And on that volcano, we had a tour guide, and he's was and is still the most handsome man I've ever met. It's like if Antonio Banderas and Zac Efron had a love child, it would be this guy. And he would point out important sites and then speak to us in English, then Spanish, then Italian um, and my insecurities were running wild. And so I said to my partner at the time, hey, he, he's hot, isn't he? Or, you know, I wanted to acknowledge the elephant in the room and infuriatingly, she didn't acknowledge it. <laughs> and so we finished that guided tour of the volcano. We hop on a boat and we sort of moor out and then head towards the hot spring. And the hot spring was 200 metres off the boat. And so I had to go for a swim. And I... I'm not the best swimmer and I've been in a pool. I can swim 10 metres from one side of the pool to the other and I only remembered that just before I was about to jump in but I, I didn't want to lose face. My insecurities are running wild so I jump in with my girlfriend and the water hits me and I panic 
and it felt cold and it probably wasn't cold because it's the Greek islands in summer, but it felt cold, trust me, Catherine, start flailing and I think I'm swimming, I'm exerting a lot of energy and then this Antonio Banderas tour guide sees me, swims up to me and says, you know, you need help. And I like wave him off. No, I'm right, mate. Like, there's no way I'm letting this guy save me. Paddle on, he swims off. And within 10 seconds, I turn to my girlfriend and say, I can't go on. I look at her, I'm, I'm panicked. I can't go on. And, she, and she, she goes, it's okay, I've got you. She wraps her arms, arms around me and just holds me up. And in the commotion, people are yelling out, help him, help him. And they throw a floaty off the boat and they don't have to throw it very far because I haven't even made it to the front of the boat. That's the truly embarrassing part. And so brings me back. Um, Antonio Banderas guy says, told you. And anyway, get on the boat. And in that moment, I thought to myself, if she will have me, I, I need to be with this girl forever. And I'm lucky enough to call her my wife today. And it's been a long time together. It's been 10 years or 15 years since, and I'm able to talk about it. <laughs> but why I share that really embarrassing story is that best decision in life I ever made is the partner I chose. And I remember that moment because when I couldn't swim, she helped keep me above water. And anyone can be good in good times. Anyone can, but I have someone in my life who has helped keep me above water in that moment. When my career at 33, I felt like I couldn't work again. I actually had a mental health breakdown and, and I just genuinely didn't think I could get back to work. My wife saw it happening. She, she intervened. She helped get me help. She realized I wasn't, quote, air quotes, normal self. And she rescued me again. And, and when work's tough, I have someone. Now, that's from a life perspective. I'm really blessed. And that's how I think about partners now. Uh, you met Federica. You met Stephen. Uh, you haven't met Stephen, but, but I have people in my life who are enduring partners that I've spent time to get to know. And I know their best quality is that when I need them, they're there. They're there to support me. And I think life's fast at the moment and we're able to businesses are raising and for your listeners out there sort of say make sure everyone's going to be good right now and everyone's good quite early on but try and find partners who are there with you along the journey and who are there in bad times ring up do your due diligence about people in their bad times not that is just the most brilliant story. I absolutely love it, and and I suppose what I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> but what I love about it, especially, is it's not just the sort of act of reaching out to save someone. It's also the ability not to be punitive about it afterwards. You know that sort of you've shown weakness, and I won't let you forget that. And so you know, I think to your point about that sort of genuine humanness that actually is the opportunity we all have to connect via our vulnerabilities because we all have them. We do. We're all human. We're all making our way in life. And it's our ability to work through the toughest moments that actually make business okay. If you can survive your tough moments, if you can make good decisions in your tough moments with other good humans around that won't exploit that, 
it's incredible. The biggest challenges are in life when you can't trust each other and you feel like you can't be vulnerable. That leads to poorer decision-making because you don't rock up to the truth. You don't confront the truth. You confront the version of the truth that makes people happy. And then you live in a fantasy land and long-term your business suffers. And do you think there's anything you can do yourself to become a magnet for those sort of people who'll stick with you in the hard times? So really, I think if, if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> it's a journey. I think I'm getting better at due diligence and spending time. I think you just need to take time. It took my wife five years as friends, 18 months as dating to accept my proposal of marriage, but I make business decisions <laughs> within a day or two at times, you know, society forces you to try and make a day or two judgment over whether I'm going to partner with someone over the next three, five, ten years. Now, I'm trying to slow down. I don't want to do that. I've been guilty of doing that before. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to do more calls. And I think to be a magnet for it, you've got to always try and live your values and know that someone's going to ask about you one day. My hope is that when people ask about us, they will say, they were good in bad times. They were reliable in bad times. I don't care what they say about us in good times. I think anyone can be good in good times. But I hope that they say that we kept our head. We helped make good decisions. We supported founders during tough times. Yeah, and and without getting too cosmic, I reckon you get back what you put out. You know, you sort of get mirrored back to you. And so my sense is that, that you know, there's some people wandering around who feel like you've been that person for them. You know, the fact that you've got those people in your life, presumably, is is a sign that that's something that, that you do for others. I hope so. I don't, it's not always perfect. There are times where you have good intentions and I've lost the ability to communicate in times and legal teams get in the way, business brinksmanship gets in the way and, and that's, sad ego gets in the way my own ego other people's ego it's really challenging I know the best ones are where you can strip away ego strip away lawyers and just communicate as business partners every year get a bit better at that but I hope that my head rests on my pillow that I have enough good relationships to know that I'm directionally heading in the right spot and the next 20 years, I hope to keep adding to that. Well, you're very generous and you've just done such an awesome job of getting out of your comfort zone and sharing stuff that's really real. Because I think sometimes, as you say, we all feel like we want to present the version of ourselves and our history that shows us in the very best light and only sort of share all the things that have gone well. So I so appreciate you not only sharing your time and support, particularly of scale, but of being really authentic and being a role model. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. If anyone's still listening, that's wonderful. (laughs) But for me, I just think the congratulations needs to be to scale. It's a difficult space. We've got to accelerate the change that's happening now and there's momentum, but we actually need more money in the hands of a more diverse group of people and different thinkers And so credit to Scale, let's have more of that and keep going to you and the founding team of Scale. Well done. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. Yep. And I think collaboration is at the heart of it. And that's why, you know, we so love having 
participants in the sector that help us magnify our impact by, you know, co-investing with us and supporting our founders and acknowledging that wherever you can provide support beyond capital, it actually has a multiplier effect. So thanks to you. Thanks to your mum and your aunties for adding to our audience. (laughs) (laughs) And um, looking forward to hopefully catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Catherine. Cheers. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.